Kings. We're in 2 Kings chapter 18, and we are continuing to journey through um, a short five-week look at some of the Old Testament kings. Two weeks ago, we looked at Solomon and how King Solomon had it all, and he was asked by the Lord, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon chose wisely with his request. He said, I want wisdom. And it's during the reign of Solomon that Israel really reaches its peak. They will never uh, be in control of more land. They will never acquire more wealth than during the reign of Solomon. Solomon had been set up very well by his father, David, probably the greatest leader in Israel's history. And it should have been the beginning of just an ascension into greatness. But Solomon was a lot like us. Solomon loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, or most of his heart, but he also loved the things of this world, the stuff of this world. And Solomon's life is really a story in trying to, to live for the Lord with passion and enjoy the things of this earth. And that's why Solomon, at the end of his life, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and said it's all meaningless. The women, the wine, the, the stuff... It's all meaningless. Last week, we looked at King Joash. Joash became king at the age of seven. If you weren't here last week and you missed the story of how a seven-year-old becomes king, read 2 Chronicles 22, 23, and 24. It's a Hollywood-like story of how Joash ascends to greatness. And the first part of Joash's reign, he reigned for 40 years, was greatness. He did a lot of restoration and renewal. He followed his mentor, the high priest Jehoiada. But when Jehoiada died, uh, Joash lost his spiritual bearings. And the sad truth is the end of his reign was very bad. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it was so bad that when Joash finally died, he was actually murdered at the end of his life. He wasn't even allowed to be buried in the tombs of the kings. And that's the chronicler's way of telling us that the Lord was very displeased with the totality of his life. And the big idea was, it's really not about how you start, it's how you finish. And I know as a 45-year-old, I don't want to just say about my life, he started well. I want people to say, he lived well and he finished well. That should be our desire. This week and next week, we look at King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, uh, maybe you've heard the name. Hezekiah is a great king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Hezekiah is spoken very well of in Scripture. This week, we're going to look at his character, what he did at the very beginning of his reign. And then next week, we're going to look at how in two different seasons uh, of leading the nation of Judah, he relied on the power of prayer. One due to a military threat, one one because of a health threat that he was facing, and and really grew as a result of the power of prayer. And then two weeks from today, Cody's going to be preaching, and he's going to look at King Josiah, who became king at the age of eight, and the power in God's Word. But let's dive in together. Before we get to the text, just some context. Sometimes you say, Greg, you're talking about Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, how does that all line up? Here's kind of a chronology. When you think of Abraham, think about 2000 BC. When you think Moses, think about 1450 BC. David, 1000 BC. Solomon's reign ended in 930 BC. Joash reigned from 835 to 796 BC. In 722 BC, the superpower that the world knew at that time, Assyria, overran the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north known as Israel, and, and they send them off into exile. 
It's a dark, dark time for God's people. The southern kingdom of Judah, of which Hezekiah is king, uh, they're going to face that same challenge. We'll look at that next week. But our text today takes place in 715 B.C., Hezekiah begins his reign. So let's read the word of the Lord together. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. In the third year, Hoshea, son of Allah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He becomes king. There's a little bit of a, a co-reign with his father Ahaz, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then in 715, it's all Hezekiah's time. And, and I want you just to think of the scripture real quickly that we just read, those seven verses. What did you learn about Hezekiah? What did you learn about Hezekiah there? Let me put some things up on the screen right from the Scripture. It says that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Very rare among the kings of Israel and Judah. Most of them did not. Hezekiah did what was right. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Israel was a lot, Judah was a lot like we are today. We want to have our cake and eat it too. Big trend going on in America, big trend going worldwide where I want to have some Christianity, but I want to adopt what I like from this religion and this religion and this religion, and I'm going to put it in one big bowl, and I'm going to have a potpourri of faith. I'm going to have a buffet of faith. I'm going to take what I like about Christianity, but I'm also going to take what I like here and here and here. Very popular today, very popular in this day. When we talk about cutting down the high places, you may say, did, did he cut down mountains? Did he get some caterpillar, earth mover equipment and go knock down the mountain? Not at all. What took place during this time, during this culture, was a pagan practice of worship, was to go to the highest place in the land and to offer incense or, or, or to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods of the day. They felt like the higher that they ascended, the closer they got to their gods. And so Hezekiah is tearing down the high places. Just a side note, when I was in India in February, the highest point in Manipur, where we were, the state where we were, is a place where many Hindus will ascend in order to burn incense. Uh, it's still taking place in 2014. Hezekiah said, enough is enough. We are not going to mix the, the rituals and the practices of the pagan gods with what God's Word has to say. What about this next phrase? Cut into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Get to that in just a moment. Trusted in the Lord. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after, and he held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. If I were to summarize, here's what I would tell you about the character of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a man of principle, and Hezekiah was a man of action. That's a dangerous combination, a man of principle and a man of action. 
He was not afraid to take a stand, even if it meant that people were unhappy, even meant that people were bothered by what took place. See, Hezekiah was willing to do the unthinkable if it would bring about renewal and change. Hezekiah was willing to say, enough is enough. Now, how many of you noticed this uh, object that we have with us today? This is a staff, and this is a bronze snake that has been attached to this staff. Um, how many of you have ever even heard the story of the bronze snake? It goes back to the, to the wilderness wanderings, and we're actually going to read that text. But what Hezekiah did is central to the story from Numbers chapter 21. He said enough is enough because one of the great icons in Israel and Judah's history was no longer a positive. It had become a negative. So let me read this scripture, and we'll figure out why there's a snake on the stage today. Numbers 21. Verse 4, it says, and this is from the wilderness wanderings. It says, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. That was my best whiny voice. I'm not very good at it, but... That's what God's people were all about during the wilderness wanderings too many times. Whiny babies. We don't like this. We don't like that. We'd be better off if we'd stayed in Egypt. And I think we see here in Numbers 21, even the Lord can say enough is enough. Verse 6, it says, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We sinned. When we spoke against the Lord and against you, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed to the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it on a pole, and anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake, and they lived. Now, I've got to say thank you to my friend Melanie Cheatham because she's a genius. She put this together for me. If I had a snake that I would have made, I don't know what it would have looked like, but it wouldn't look this nice. But I can imagine that during the wilderness wanderings, I mean, the Israelites are just afraid because they know they've been whiny babies. They know they deserve the wrath that they're enduring. But when you get bit by a venomous snake and die, it happens to your neighbor, that happens to your father, that happens to your son, that happens to your friend. I mean, that would do some real damage to you. And so how cool would it be you see one of your best friends, they're bit by a venomous snake, and they are destined to die, and here comes Moses, and he's got this bronze snake, and your neighbor looks at it, and all of a sudden, he's alive. He's saying, bring out that Dominican coffee that we had during Sunday school hour for the mission presentation. I mean, just like that, life is good again. And so if that played out, say, in our world today, if we experienced something like this, and we had this, this bronze snake, and it, it had the power to heal a venomous snake bite and keep people from dying, what would you think about this? Would you think, eh, it's kind of nice, you know, maybe I'd like to see it every once in a while? Or would you say, wow, that's salvation. That's a part of our history that should endure forever. And that's exactly what happened with God's people. As they journeyed through the wilderness wanderings, as they inherited the promised land, 
as they became a kingdom of their own with a real king and a real temple and a, a real palace, this uh, icon was with them every step of the way. And you would think, well, that's how it should be. But something happened in the over 800 years from the wilderness wanderings to the time of Hezekiah, and here's what happened. This beautiful icon of worship went from a treasure to just a, a trophy, something that was okay. And by the time of Hezekiah, they had so corrupted it, I'm going to say it had become trash. See, they were burning incense to this icon in direct violation of what true worship to Yahweh was all about. Why would they do that, you may say? One of the commentaries this week on this passage of Scripture said, in the ancient Near East, the serpent was often venerated as a god of healing. And in the region of Syria, Palestine, numerous copper, bronze, serpent figures have been found. And so the culture of the day worshipped bronze serpents, copper snakes. And so God's people said, let's have our cake and let's eat it too. We can have Yahweh worship, true worship, but we'll also adopt the culture of the day. We'll burn incense to it, and that way we're covered however it unfolds. Some God, somewhere, is going to hear our cry. It went from treasure to trophy to trash. And so here's my big idea that I want you to take away with you today that I want you to understand. When a good snake becomes a bad snake... It's time for renewal and change. When a good snake becomes a bad snake, it's time for renewal and change. This cycle, sadly, has unfolded many more times than just here in Old Testament history. We see it unfold in the New Testament. When you think of the Pharisees, you probably think negative. But do you realize that the Pharisees, I mean, when they began, it was a positive. It was a great thing when the Pharisees began. They were committed to the law. They wanted God's people to get back to God's law, the book of Moses, the, the law. But by the time Jesus comes along, they are so legalistic, hence the term, they're missing the, the big picture. They're missing Jesus. They killed Jesus. They say enough is enough. What about Romans chapter 14? You may be saying, what's Romans chapter 14? We see in the book of Romans... First century A.D., there's argument about when we should worship. Some are saying we should worship on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Others are saying, no, we should worship on the first day of the week. And Paul, Paul has to say, you're missing the big picture. You're missing the thing that it's not about Saturday worship or Sunday worship. It's about worship. What about in church history? You look at some of the great movements of God in church history, some of the great revivals that have taken place, there's almost always resistance and you would think that the resistance would come from the pagans, the non-Christians. No, the resistance almost always has come from the church, the people that have been around the Bible a long time, the people that are really committed to their traditions, people that say, we haven't done it like that before. And what about today? Are there bad snakes among us today? I want to take a quick time out right now, and I, I'm giving you an assignment. And I want you, and you can do it by yourself, you can do it with whoever you came to church with. Uh, what are bad snakes in the world today? What are bad snakes in the church today? Something that at one time was a blessing, and today it causes 
division. It's not really doing what it was intended to do. Right now, go. Ready, get set, go. 60 seconds. Go. Bad snakes today. Bad snakes today. Now, I didn't do this first service because I, I kind of trust second service a little more than I trust first service. I didn't let anybody uh, answer. I, don't tell them I said that, by the way. That's just a secret between the 300 of us. But um, I'm going to let some of you answer this out loud. And this is very dangerous. So. Um, don't let me down. Bad snakes today in the world, bad snakes today in the church. Jan, did you have something? Okay. Yeah, like an order of service. It has to be boom, 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 or it's not right. Larry. Yeah, worshiping the cross instead of what the purpose of the cross is. Good, good. Yeah, I think it can be. Andy? The church building itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we love our church. I love this building. I show off this sanctuary every chance I get. But we should never see it anything more than a room that is used for the glory of God. If we're worshiping the room, we're missing the point. Anybody else in back? What's that? Leadership? Okay, okay. Well, let me share with you what some of the smartest people in my life shared. I sent this question out to 10 ministers in central Illinois. And I won't name their names, but some of their answers were interesting. One of them said, I don't know how others have responded, but perhaps the one thing that may be most obvious and most dangerous to point out is the church building itself. He said, I'm not saying that the building's being used directly for evil, but can it be an icon that can be used inadvertently to keep people out, or it becomes more important than the mission of the church? Another minister said, crosses up front that get covered by the screen. They were used to inspire, now they cause division. Another person said door-to-door -door evangelism programs like Evangelism Explosion. At one time, very powerful. Now when people see it, they think Jehovah Witness. They think something other than the intended purpose. Another person said, why did revivals begin? Revivals began to be an outreach for a church. There are churches that fight and battle because we want to have our revival and we want to have it this way, and they have a revival and only Christians come, missing the very purpose of revivals. This is one that may, may uh, bother a couple of you. One person said, flags on the stage, American and Christian, debated in many churches, Celebration of U.S. holidays in worship. Focus on the United States of America instead of the kingdom of God. And I will tell you, should I tell you or not? I'm trying to think if I should tell you or not. I have had some of the most discouraging comments made to me personally, not to me personally, but about the church the Sunday the American flag didn't get put back after vacation Bible school. Just unbelievably harsh comments about how they couldn't worship because the American flag wasn't on stage. I'm not an American. I love living in America. The focus of what we're doing right now is Jesus Christ. I hope that's your focus. That's what we're all about. I, I could go on and on. Um, one of our ministers chimed in, and I love what he wrote here. He said, you know, what about communion? 
something that was instituted by Jesus himself to unite his followers in remembering the sacrifice of the cross, yet it has divided so many into denominations, into groups over the specifics on how you practice it. And I've been to churches where, as a Christ follower, I couldn't commune with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why I'm really passionate that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I I strongly encourage you to take communion when it's offered, whether you're a member of an independent Christian church or not. I could go on and on and on and on, and I'm going to stop. I'm just going to say if we think that that was just a Hezekiah thing and just a 715 B.C. thing, and it doesn't infect and impact us today, we are kidding ourselves. So what do we do with this? Two things that I want to do with this. Number one, I believe without a shadow of a doubt the church needs Christ followers who will embody the character of Hezekiah. They will be people who are men and women of principle and men and women of action. They will be unafraid to draw a line in the sand. Uh, To say I'm afraid is probably too extreme, but I am nervous about what our country is going to look like five years from now, eight years from now, ten years from now when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to wedding ceremonies, when it comes to being able to articulate that I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I think there will be a segment of the Christian population in America that might not be willing to be people of principle or people of action. And I've left that vague. I'm going to leave that out there vague. I'm just going to say we need people that are unafraid to be people of principle and people of action. Number two, and this is kind of the point, the church needs Christ followers who will be committed to Jesus and not bad snakes. You may say, how could I be committed to a bad snake? Let me ask you a question. What would cause you to leave your church? Have you ever thought about that? What would cause you to say, I'm done, I'm out, can't take anymore, I'm all done? If it's because your church isn't passionate about the mission of Jesus Christ, okay. If it's because your church isn't committed to the truth of God's word, Okay. If it's because you don't like something that's going on, if it's because I'm not a fan of the carpet, if it's because I'm not a fan of the the worship style, if it's because I'm not a fan that the preacher wears a polo instead of a suit and tie, I, I can go on and on and on and on and on. That's a bad snake. That's a bad snake. It's all about Jesus. Well, let me conclude with a a story. It's the story of a pastor who loved to tell stories to the children of his church. They didn't have a junior church program, so every week before he would preach, he would bring all the children up front. And one day he brought them up and he said, boys and girls, I want to tell you a story about someone who likes to live in the woods, but sometimes we can see him in our yards. Anybody have any idea who I'm talking about? Silence. Nobody said a word. So he went on and he said, I want to tell you about a creature that lives in the woods and sometimes in our yards, has a big bushy tail and likes to eat nuts. Anybody have any idea who I'm talking about? 
silence. A third time he says, I'm talking about a creature that lives in the woods, sometimes in our yards, big bushy tail, eats nuts, likes to climb trees, sometimes will jump from tree to tree. Now does anybody know what I'm talking about? One kid raised his hand out of misery and he said, Pastor, I know the answer should be Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. Can I borrow that punchline as we conclude this message this morning? Friends, there are men and women and teens and children in our society who are on the outside of this church looking in, and they're hurting, and they're afraid, and their hearts are broken, many of their homes are broken, their dreams have been shattered, their life is a disaster. And they turn to the church, and they listen, and they watch, and I'm afraid some Maybe many walk away and say, I know their answer should be Jesus, but it sounds to me like they're talking about an old, dead snake. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and for how you bless us and for how you care for us. And thank you so much for the hope that we have because of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer this morning that We will not be a people that are committed to bad snakes, but that we'll be committed to what matters most, the mission of your church, a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that we have diversity of worship here, that we sing hymns with the organ at 815, and we sing choruses with a band at 11. I thank you that some people wear suits and some people wear polos and some people wear shorts and flip-flops. I thank you that some people are rich and some people aren't. Some people have been around you a long time and some people are brand new baby Christians. But it's my hope that we'll never allow our differences to divide us. That we'll never allow the things that really don't matter to take up incredible importance in our hearts and our lives. We love you so much. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is a commitment time as it is every week here at FCC. If you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ, I invite you to come. If you would like someone to pray with you, I'm up front. I'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you this morning as we sing and Samuel and the team leads us in our song of commitment. As you guys stand, I'm going to read the scripture from Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once we were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. As we worship together and reflect on what Christ has done, let us focus our eyes completely on him, on the foundation of who he is and the reason that we are here this morning. Hope is found in the blood of the Savior. Love and power washes me. Grace abounds from the mystery of His presence. 